Alrighty. Evening, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Man, I'm so full. <laughs> this is not good. I found it quite ironic, given what we were looking at this morning, that they decided to ply us with fortune cookies tonight. Um, anyway, we are in Esther chapter 3. Um, now, let me just say at the outset, and John C's hinted at it already, that we are, um, we are covering difficult material in Esther. Uh, and particularly this morning around Xerxes' treatment of women. Um, and so if you're here and this is just particularly sensitive and this is raising particularly sensitive things for you, then please talk to somebody while you're here. Please talk to John T. or Linda or um, one of the other team here um, to chat and pray as we unpack some of these difficult things. Um, but tonight we turn to a wonderful portion of Scripture and we have got so much incredible story to work through this evening. Um, we may go on a bit longer than normal, but we'll see how we go. Um, let's just start. Bibles are helpful if you've got them. Um, that's chapter 3. Let's just start with a bit of a recap. Okay? Just, uh, we've had a long day. Let's just refresh our memories on where we got up to. Um, the book of Esther so far. Okay? The Persians are the ruling world empire. Some of God's people, under Cyrus's decree, have gone back to the land. They are rebuilding Jerusalem, but many have stayed in Susa, the Persian heartland, and they're immersed in that culture. Xerxes is on the throne. He's the tyrannical, self-declared God-man who loves nothing more than a good war, nice wine, and bedding lots of women. And he got mad with his wife, Vashti, for not obeying him at a party in front of a whole load of guests. She got banished. Xerxes then loses a war against the Greeks. He comes home upset. He decides to find a new wife by sleeping with all of the beautiful virgins across the kingdom to see which one was best. Enter Esther. She's Jewish orphan, refugee, and beautiful, whose cousin Mordecai is her adopted dad. She ends up in the harem, finds favor with everybody, and ultimately with Xerxes himself after her one night with him, and she is proclaimed queen. Chapter 2 concludes with Mordecai just so happening to be in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot to assassinate Xerxes. He tells Esther, who tells the king, who has it all written down in his journal, and it's put on the shelf and forgotten about for the time being. So, despite God's people seeming weak, chapter 2 ends with a Jewish queen and a Jewish man who has just saved the life of the most powerful king on earth. And that's where we're up to. Esther chapter 2. Now, remember, all this to say, this isn't just a good story. Isn't just a good story. This right here that we are just swimming around in tonight, this is God's word to us. And as such, this is a book, as we thought about this morning, that points us to Jesus, the one to whom all scripture directs us to. And so we want to approach it humbly. We want to be ready to learn. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, puts it like this. He says, God never meant the book of Esther to lie dumb. And whatever it seemed good to him to teach us by it, it ought to be our earnest endeavor to learn. And that's what we're here to do this evening. Let's pray to that end now. Okay, then we're going to dive deep into these chapters. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we considered a moment ago, as John T. started this session with, we, are, we feel full after a, um, a long day and a full day of lots of good things and lots of good food. But we long tonight to be filled with your word. 
Help us now as we just spend this time feasting on this portion of Scripture to delight all the more in the person of Christ. And we pray that for all of the the trouble and the pain that we considered this morning, we would just be so full of the joy of the Lord as we go away tonight, as we reflect upon the fact that you have indeed, as we've just sung, done great things for us. So please lead us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, same thing with the readings this evening. So um, Esther and Tom, appropriately named, are going to be coming and um, reading for us tonight as we go. Uh, end of chapter 2, before we get there, end of chapter 2, at this point in the story, expectation is that Mordecai is going to be honored, right? He's just foiled this plot against the king. Um, surely we think he's going to be recognized for such loyalty, but then curveball, we're introduced to our final main character. Uh, we're going to start chapter 3. For the first time, we meet the infamous Haman. Um, by the way, we've moved on a bit. Verse 7, we're going to find out that uh, we're probably about five years into Esther's reign as queen at this point. Okay. Chapter 3 of Esther, read by Esther. Thank you. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the Lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down, sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Okay, so in a synagogue, if the name Haman was read out, even today, um, in some places, everyone would hiss. Uh, he's a classic bad guy. His name uh, in Hebrew, um, actually, sorry, his name actually sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath, uh, Haman. And as with Mordecai, we're given a bit of Haman's um, family history, which is no accident. It says, can you see in verse 1, that he's the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite. Now, remember from this morning who Mordecai was? Remember we saw a bit of his family history? That he's the descendant of Kish, who was King Saul's father. So you've got Mordecai from King Saul's line, and you've got Haman from Agag's line. Why is this a big deal? Agag was king of the Amalekites at the time that Saul was king of Israel. And the Amalekites were the first people to attack and try and destroy God's newly formed covenant people. And then in 1 Samuel 15, you can go and read there, King Saul was supposed to get rid of Agag. Supposed to kill him, destroy him. But he didn't. He kept him alive. And there's a whole bunch of trouble in Saul's life. And so fast forward to the time of Esther. And once again, you've got Agag, the guy that Saul failed to get rid of, up against Saul. Haman up against Mordecai. And so the question that is in the head of every Jew who is reading this is who's going to win? Is Saul's descendant finally going to do what Saul was supposed to do and destroy Agag, or is Agag going to finally triumph? And so probably as a result, despite the honor that Haman has received from Xerxes, and despite the royal order to bow down to him, end of verse 2, Mordecai refuses. And we're thinking, okay, that's maybe a big mistake, because verse 5, Haman is enraged, and then he allows his rage to spill over quite dramatically into these genocidal ambitions, verse 6, by seeking to set out to kill not only Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. And we read it and we think, well, that's a bit of a kind of wild overreaction, wanting to kill an entire people group because of the consequences of one guy. And yeah, it is, but then when we think about it, it's always been like this. Because throughout the Bible, as you read it, you see that Satan hates the covenant people of God. And he will do anything he can to try and destroy them. We'll get to that a bit later on this evening. For now, though, verse 7, Haman needs to figure out when he's going to kill all the Jews. And so, look in verse 7, he, he casts lots. He basically rolls the dice. Um, that's that thing called pur there. Now, that's going to be really important tomorrow. Okay, so keep that word pur in your mind. Don't worry, I'm not having you on. I will... The, the book will reveal everything. Um, anyway, Haman rolls the dice, rolls the, the purr, to decide a day for this mass slaughter. So say it's kind of rolling two sixes or something, whatever it was. You know, this is going to be the date. If it lands on double six, then this is the date we're going to kill them. So he rolls the dice. 11th of May, can we kill them then? Nope. Can we kill them 12th of May? Nope. And eventually he rolls two sixes on a day 11 months later. You can see there at the end of verse 7. And Haman thinks the gods are speaking. Now we know what's going on, right? from what we saw this morning, the providence of God. How all things happen, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He is providential over every throw of every dice. In fact, Proverbs 16 tells us as much. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every dice roll, the Lord is sovereign over. Anyway, verse 8 through 11. Haman goes and he tells his plan to the king, and he commits, verse 9, 10,000 talents of silver from his own pocket for this mass killing. That's about 150 million in today's money. A lot of money. That's how committed he is to this project. He's going to personally bankroll it. 
And the king loves this, all right? He's, he's, um, he's just depleted his coppers by this terrible war against the Greeks. So he's on board, verse 10. And Haman, you can see in verse 10, is given the signet ring of the king, which gives him full authority to do what he wants. And so verse 12 through 15, this divine decree is issued across the whole of the, the, the um, whole of the empire, execute the Jews. And not just the Jews in Susa or in a particular area, but verse 13, you can see that this day of judgment is against all of God's people across every province, across all of the known world, the 127 provinces that we mentioned this morning. This is total genocide against the Jews, against God's people. And the chapter ends in verse 15, where those in Susa who hear this edict are totally stunned. You, know, you can imagine it, can't you? You're not a Jew, but you get a letter through the door saying that 11 months' time, you have to, by order of Xerxes, kill all the Jews on your street. Men, women, and children. I mean, we thought this morning was awful. And meanwhile, Xerxes and Haman are just sitting back in the palace toasting their great idea. I mean, don't you, that sentence at the end of verse 15 is just horrible. The king and Haman sat down to drink. And if it looks at this point as though evil is winning, I think that is what we're meant to feel. This is what God's covenant people would have felt. How is there any way out of this? This is a divine decree. It cannot be changed to kill the Jews. There is no getting out of it. Or is there? Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Okay, so verse 1 through 3. Um, understandably, there's this just tremendous weighty sorrow from Mordecai and amongst the Jewish people because of the Holocaust that's been issued. And verse um, 4 through 8. Esther gets wind of Mordecai's distress. Remember, he's hanging, out, hang, he's hanging around outside the um, palace gates. And she sends Hathak, who's one of the eunuchs, to find out what's up. And then there's this back and forth that we picked up in the reading then between Mordecai and Esther, with Mordecai desperate for Esther to go and plead with the king for help, plead before the king. He knows that she has the platform more than anyone else to at least try and say something. But Esther's got this major dilemma because verse 11, you can't go into the king's presence unless you are summoned. Esther's been kept away from Xerxes for a month already. It's not like Esther can just waltz into Xerxes' study and ask him a favor because most people who do that end up on a spike. And so Esther, somewhat understandably, stalls. She doesn't refuse, but she's kind of not that keen on this idea. But then verse 12 through 14, Mordecai responds with three killer lines of persuasion. Firstly, by reminding Esther, verse 13, that she is not safe in the king's palace, even though she's queen. We know that from seeing Xerxes already. Secondly, verse 14, by letting her know that deliverance will come from the, for the Jews, regardless of what Esther does. And we just get an insight into Mordecai's faith here, don't we? His confidence that the Jews will not face annihilation because of God's covenant promises to his people. It's not made explicit, but it's implied in what's said here. Start of verse 14. And then thirdly, end of verse 14, he, w- he warns her that she will suffer if she neglects her responsibility, even if the Jews are delivered, which kind of sounds as though he's warning her that she will face God's judgment if she doesn't side with God's people. <coughs> and we see that throughout the Bible. You want to be on the side of God's people. However bleak it looks, you want to be on the side of God's people. And then you've got maybe the most famous line in the whole book at the end of verse 14, which hints strongly at Mordecai's trust in the providence of God when he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther needs to realize that God has arranged this. Her her beauty, her queenship for this very moment, she is in this place according to God's providence. Now, up until this point, Esther's been living as a pagan. No one has known otherwise that she's a Jew. But here at the end of the chapter, she is transformed. And there is this great reversal in Esther's life. And she now, for the first time in the narrative, just begins to move front and center as the main character in the story. And verse 15 through 17, it's like a switch is flicked, and Esther just transformed, and she starts calling the shots. She calls Mordecai to gather the Jews and to fast, by implication, to pray, because she's going to go for this, even if it means her death. And at this point, we feel it, that the tension is almost overwhelming because how is this Jewish queen going to fare as she comes against the might of Xerxes 
and his right-hand man, Haman. On we go with the story. Uh, and now we're going to slow down even more. Everything that happens over between chapters 5 and chapters 8 happens over a period of two days. So the writer of Esther just winds things down, and we're going super slow-mo now as we dive into the story. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. Thanks, Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Okay, so here's Esther robed up in her royal garb, verse 1. And incredibly, she gets access to the throne room. And Xerxes doesn't kill her. That's remarkable thing, number one. And in fact, he's actually pleased to see her, verse 2. Can you see? He was pleased with her. And verse 3, he offers up to half his kingdom. Um, end of verse 3. Now, when he says that, he doesn't actually mean half his kingdom. It's hyperbole. It's a turn of phrase. It's like, um, I'm in a good mood today. Try me. It's that kind of thing. And so we're thinking, okay, Esther, now, now's your chance. Dob Haman in. Free the Jews. Save the day. End of the book. We can go and do a murder mystery. Um, <laughs> but she stalls. And she invites the king to a banquet along with Haman. And so they have this feast. And again, in verse 6, the king asks Esther what she wants. Verse 6, can you see? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? And so they have this feast again. And then verse 7, the tension builds. And um, the king asks, and Esther says, my petition and my request is this. And then I love it, the verse ends there. And we're thinking, okay, what's it going to be? And then she just invites them to another banquet tomorrow. And we're thinking, why are you delaying? Surely this is your such a time as this moment. And the suspense is heightened. But that extra day is going to be really helpful, as we're going to see. Really helpful. Banquet over. Haman heads out for a walk around town. Verse 9 through 14. Tom, thanks. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. 
But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Okay, so life couldn't get any better for Haman right about now. He's the king's right-hand man. He's banqueting with the king and queen. You can see it in the way he boasts before his family and friends in verse 11 and 12. And it's all gravy, apart from the fact that Mordecai is a, th- um, is a thorn in Haman's side. Because Haman is furious that this one guy won't acknowledge him. And remarkably, despite all that he has, he says, verse 13, I mean, I find this striking. He says he has no satisfaction while Mordecai's around, despite everything he has. And so his wife, Zeresh, pushes for this public execution, this impaling pole that we kind of saw this morning. I won't put it on the screen again. An impaling pole set up in the garden for Mordecai to be spiked onto. And Haman loves this idea, and so he commissions it. And all night long, the construction lights are on. This giant pole is being put up in his back garden. And I mean, Haman is so dramatic, right? I mean, it's extraordinarily huge. It's 23 meters high, this pole. Um, that's the height of about two and a half telephone poles on top of each other. It's enormous. A picture, really, of his inflated ego. Because Haman is about to make sure that everybody knows that you don't mess with Haman. The king might be on the throne, but really Haman's the one with the power. And at this point in the narrative, again, we just feel like this low ebb because the countdown timer is on before the total genocide of God's people. Mordecai, remember, from the kingly line, is now about to be strung up on a pole for the whole of the city to see. Esther seems to be stalling in her plea before the king, and we're thinking maybe God's people are on the way out because this feels like an impossible situation to escape from. And I think it's, it's worth just pausing here to consider this, that hostility against God's people is always the way. Hostility against God's people is always the way, because Haman, he, he wasn't a one-off. There is a hostility toward the people of God that threads throughout the entire Bible. And it started right back in the Garden of Eden, Satan setting out to destroy Adam and Eve. It's been like that ever since. You see it throughout the pages of the Old Testament. God's people facing attack and persecution. It crescendos in Jesus, the Son of God, being strung up on a cross, scorned and reviled. And for those of us who belong to Jesus now, we share in that. Jesus promises it, Matthew 10, all people will hate you because of me. One author puts it like this. Haman's enmity toward God's people was merely the latest manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God. Our expectation of life ought to be of a constant spiritual battle in which unseen spiritual adversaries are constantly ranged against us. And I say that not to frighten you, but to help you see the reality of the war that we're in. But we don't need to fear as we will see. But as we read what goes on here with God's people in Esther, and as we see how Jesus endured such opposition, don't be surprised then when you face hostility as, as a, one of God's people, as a Christian. In the last um, century, one source suggests that on average 300,000 Christians were martyred each year. Each year. 
quite a sobering thought to think that right at this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are people in this world who want to kill you. Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. And so hostility against God's people is always the way. And at times, it can look like the enemies of God are the ones who are going to triumph, while God's people are just going to fade into oblivion. But it's in those moments that we've got to remember that the story's not over. Right? Satan doesn't get the last laugh ever. And so come with me to chapter 6, which is just where everything starts to change. And this right here is the great reversal. This chapter is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. Um, I love it. So we're going we're gonna to slow down. We're going to take it bit by bit. There are so many just-so-happened moments here that we can't help but see God's providence at work here, even though he isn't mentioned. Um, it's a bit like the game Mousetrap. You know what I mean? You know the game Mousetrap? Um, where you turn the wheel, it kicks the bucket, that knocks the ball, that hits the pad, that moves the post, that jogs the cage, that lands on the mouse. That game. We played that game? Right. Um, it's that kind of chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read. That night, the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Pause. So it just so happens that on this very night, the king can't sleep. And if the king can't sleep, no one gets to sleep, and he gets someone to read him a story. And it just so happens that they read his biography, and it just so happens that they turn to the page about Mordecai. Remember the end of chapter 2. And all of this just so happens to happen on the night before Mordecai is due to be impaled on this 23-meter-high pole. And so verse 3, Xerxes decides in the middle of the night that Mordecai should be honored. Verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. Now, it was important in the Persian kingdom to reward those who were loyal to the king. It encouraged loyalty, it decreased the likelihood of rebellion. But Xerxes needs help sorting this out. Remember, he tends to need help quite a lot. And so he, he finds out who's still working this time of night to come in and help him with this. Verse 4, the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai and the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered him, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And we're thinking, brilliant, it's Haman of all people. And not only that, Haman's on his way in to talk to the king about impaling Mordecai. And you can just imagine Haman, right? He is buzzing as he walks in. He's super confident, he's sipping his vanilla latte, and he's just rocking in to talk to his mate Xerxes about this giant pole he's had set up to kill this Jew on. And it just gets better, verse Six, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Now we know that Xerxes is talking about Mordecai, but Haman doesn't know that. He thinks the king's talking about him. He just sees the whole world revolve around his massive ego, and he just lets his daydream fall out of his mouth. Verse seven, so he answered the king, 
For the man the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Pause. So Haman is there and he's in his mind and he's imagining the cheering crowds, Haman, Haman. But then, just at the peak of his pride, his world falls apart. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Now, of all the rooms in world history to be a fly on the wall on, I mean, this has got to be up there just for comical value. What is Haman's face looking like at this point in front of Xerxes when Mordecai is announced as the man? And then Haman has to get Mordecai dressed up and he has to parade him through the city, verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. He led him on horseback through the streets, proclaimed before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And it's striking, isn't it, how in a moment you can go from rags to the right hand of the king? And the author is just wanting us to see, begin to see this big theme of reversal that is about to unfold because Mordecai in this moment goes from sackcloth and about to be killed and mourning to wearing the royal robe and he's riding the king's horse and he's being honored by everyone and you can imagine him thinking, what on earth is going on? How did this happen? More on that a bit later. Things all of a sudden have turned on their head. Verse 12, afterwards Mordecai returned to the king's gate but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You'll surely come to ruin. Thanks. Wife, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And you would imagine that Haman's a bit less excited about attending the banquet this time round. Let's see what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And this time, she goes for it. Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, and you can just imagine she's nervous, her heart's beating. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such thing would justify disturbing the king. Now, the king, remember, he didn't know that Esther was a Jew. She kept quiet about it, and he's livid. Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And then Esther finally gets a moment, and she calls out, Haman, verse 6. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Now in Hebrew, it sounds like machine gun fire when spoken out loud. It's that kind of staccato to the, to the word. She turns the gun on Haman and she just lets rip. And Haman, rightly, is absolutely terrified. And you can imagine the cogs whirring in his mind, oh, she's a Jew. Because he didn't know that. So he knows he's in 
big trouble. And then he just digs the hole even deeper, verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life because Haman thinks that Esther is the only chance he's got. And so he decides to stay and plead with her. Now, harem protocol was that no one but the king could be left alone with a woman of the harem. And so when Xerxes stormed out into the garden, Haman should have left the room. Even in the presence of others, a man wasn't allowed to come within seven steps of a woman of the, king, of the king's harem. And yet, verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. I mean, the irony is thick, right? The whole conflict in this story has only come about because Mordecai won't bow down before Haman the Agagite. And here you've got Haman bowing down before this Jewish queen trying to save his life. But it's the final straw for Xerxes. Now he's got a reason to get rid of Haman without implicating himself. And so verse 8, carrying on, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And then it's mafia style, hood over the head, Haman's done. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then in the biggest slice of irony imaginable, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, conveniently lets slip about Haman's pole idea. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And you can imagine Haman's delight at this unhelpful comment, because then Haman is impaled on it. The king said, verse 9, impale him on it, and so they impaled Haman on the pole. He had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. And let me tell you, if this was read out of the synagogue, everyone would go nuts at this point. Everyone would be cheering. And I mean, this is such a crazy few chapters. We're thinking, only God can do this. The providence of God in all the detail. Haman is dead. God's people for now live on. And I say for now because there's an issue. Haman is gone, but the real problem still exists. Because remember, the king's edict cannot be revoked. The Jews are still living on borrowed time. There's nothing they can do about it. It's like in the Daniel story. Remember that? Darius can't repeal his law. That's the Persian rule. The king makes issues a decree. It can't be changed, no matter what the king says. Same issue here. So the Jews are still living on borrowed time. And so we head into our final chapter for tonight. Chapter 8, let's look at 1 through 14. Thanks, Esther. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. 
For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned, on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. Okay, start of chapter 8, it's another reversal alert. Haman's entire estate gets given to the Jewish queen, who in turn hands it over to Mordecai, the Jew, who also gets this special signet ring from the king. And so, ironically, Haman's plot to destroy Mordecai leads to him acquiring Haman's property and possessions and position. Here's the problem. Verse 3. The king's former edict that calls for the destruction of the Jews can't be revoked, right? Haman is dead, but his legacy lives on because everyone, remember, has been ordered to kill the Jews on a certain day in a few months' time. But another new edict can be worked up, which can help deal with the other one, which is what the king commissions. And so, verse 9, these royal secretaries get to work. They draw up a new edict that is fleshed out in verse 11. And basically, as we heard it read, the Jews are given permission to defend themselves against those who are going to attack them. Really important, okay? The Jews don't go on the rampage, but they are allowed to defend and protect themselves. And verse 14, this new edict gets sent out by express delivery it's the fastest transport known to man at the time. The king's royal horses all throughout the provinces. It's like Amazon Prime with less cardboard. And everyone in every province from India to Kush in East Africa hears about it. And we're going to see how all that goes down tomorrow morning. Okay, we're going to see how this plays out in the end. But regardless, this is great news for God's people at this point because they know they're not going to be wiped out. They're going to have the chance to defend themselves on this day. Salvation against all odds has come. And so just finally, look at how chapter 8 ends. And just consider, as these few verses are read, the reversals that have taken place with everything we've seen tonight. Next one. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration 
For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Thank you. Do you see the reversals there in those three verses? This new edict has provoked the exact opposite effect of the previous edict amongst God's people because last time there was fear and there was terror and now there is celebration, there is feasting and there is joy and what was supposed to be a day of judgment for God's people is going to become this day of glory and triumph. Mordecai, he should have died on the pole, but now he is exalted with great glory. Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes, but now he's permanently dressed in the royal robes. And rather than fighting against them, non-Jews are warned of the coming judgment. And so they start to align themselves with the people of God. See that at the end of verse 17? Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And so the whole thing is just this one unexpected, glorious reversal for God's people. They've gone from death to life. They've gone from judgment to blessing. They've gone from shame to honor. They've gone from mourning to rejoicing. And then tomorrow we'll turn to our final section, and we're going to see this deliverance for God's people finally accomplished and remembered. Okay, we'll come to that in the morning. Okay, we made it through six long chapters. Um, We're nearly done. As we land, this is where we've got to finish. And then we're going to sing in response, because that's an appropriate finish, that the story of Esther is merely a shadow of God's great reversal. It's merely a shadow. As we read through the pages of the Bible, we may find ourselves tempted to wonder whether Satan's going to triumph. As we see people caught in the snare of sin and death, and left to face God's just judgment, and we're thinking there's no way out. And as it looked for the Jews at the end of chapter 5, it's a hopeless scenario. So it might seem for humanity under Satan's rule of sin and of death. But just as God works a great reversal in this story of Esther, leading to the defeat of his enemies and life for his people, so he has done that on a cosmic scale through the person of his Son for all who trust him. You see, the greatest reversal in human history was not Haman getting impaled on his own pole. It's when Jesus, the Son of God, is crucified. Because when Jesus is crucified, the tables are turned. Now, it didn't look like that at the time, right? Just like Haman thinking that he's won as he erects this pole to impale Mordecai on, so it looks like Satan is won as Jesus, Son of God, is lifted up on a cross. The Son of God dead. And Satan's thinking, well, sin and death win, right? But just as Haman was executed on his own pole, so God beats Satan with his own stick. And the cross becomes the place where sin and Satan are defeated. And at the cross, Jesus takes on himself the full weight of God's anger against sin, meaning that we are no longer locked in sin's chokehold. And so you see the cross of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection from the dead is the greatest reversal in the history of the world. Because instead of triumphing, Satan is defanged. His power is stripped from him. And all of a sudden, for people under the curse of sin and fearing judgment, there is hope of life instead of death because Jesus has swapped places with us. 
of joy instead of mourning, of peace with God instead of war, of honor instead of shame. And if you're a Christian here tonight, then you have experienced that reversal for yourself. Ephesians 2 captures this so perfectly. Um, You don't need to turn there. Uh, Ephesians 2, these will be familiar words to lots of us. Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's where we were. That's where we are by nature. But, verse 4, God's great reversal, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, this reversal story in Esther is just a trailer. It's just a trailer for a better reversal story that we are all caught up in if we're trusting in Christ. And let me tell you that all of that means that 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 joy and that celebration that God's people experience at the end of chapter 8, you know, the parties, the feasting, the happiness that just sings off the page, that can be something of your joy now. And it might not feel like that as we start January, but it's true. That if you're a Christian, you've experienced that great reversal and nothing can undo that. Know that? Nothing can undo that. That is set in divine decree that you are known and loved. And though we may face hostility now as God's people, we can be sure that the war has already been won and that we are on the winning side. And I mean, we can just swim around in the permanence of this great reversal that's ours. It's Romans 8 again, right? Because of this great reversal, we can say with Paul, if God is for us, and by the way, he is, look at the cross. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Answer, nobody. The devil has got nothing on you anymore because God has justified you in full. Who then is the one who condemns? Nobody. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means guilt and shame are gone in full, for good. And so shall anything separate you from the love of Christ? Is anything going to mean that God turns around and looks at you one day and says, nah. No chance. Nothing's going to make that ever happen. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are on the winning side. End of discussion. And that is a permanent decree. And if you are ever unsure about it, you just look at the nail-scarred hand of your Savior. Your King, who came to save you. And all of which means that we can celebrate, just as God's people did way back then. And in fact, viewed through the lens of the cross, you might paraphrase Esther chapter 8, verse 15, a bit like this. And the people of the globe church 
held a joyous celebration. For the people of God, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every town and in every city to which the gospel message came from the south bank to Bath to the very ends of the earth. There was joy and gladness among God's people with feasting and celebrating. And let me say to you tonight, that is our reality as those trusting in Jesus. And if you are sitting here tonight knowing that at the moment you're on the outside looking in, then let me say to you that tonight you can come and join the party. Put your trust in Jesus even tonight. Trust that he has come to deliver you from your sin. That he has worked that greatest of reversals for you. And know the overwhelming joy of life and forgiveness and honor and peace. And that would be the best thing that you could possibly do this weekend. And then you can join us in singing, in praise to our Savior and our King. So I'm going to pray now as the band come up. And then we'll rejoice loudly together at God's great reversal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can't help but be gripped by the, just the grittiness of this story. But we pray, please, that we would look through this narrative to see the one to whom it foreshadows. And that we would know deeply the love of Christ. That we would rejoice in the greatest of reversals that the Lord Jesus was nailed fast to a cross, that we might go from death to life, that we might go from shame to honor, that we might go from fasting to feasting. And we pray, Father, that we might then live in the light of that, that we might be a people for all of the things that we may be anxious about for this coming year, and for all of the things that at this moment might feel acutely difficult, we pray, please, that you would give us a deep joy at the salvation that has been won for us in Christ that this remarkable book of Esther points us to. And we pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.